0: This is Money Beat from the Wall Street Journal. Now from our studios in New York, here are Paul Vigna and Steven Grosser.
1: If you follow Wall Street, you probably have heard the name Greg Fleming. Twice he's come close to running a major Wall Street firm. Merrill Lynch first, then Morgan Stanley. This week, he finally ascended to the top job. Welcome to Money Beat. This is Steve Grosser with Eric Holm and Liz Hoffman who reported the story. So Liz... Mr Fleming has flirted a lot with the top job before. This week the Rockefeller and Company named him CEO. That's the family office of uh, you know John D Ro, the old 19th century oil baron John D Rockefeller. What is you know why did he take this job and you know what's the significance of it I guess. He
2: he came very close to running Merrill Lynch and probably would have but for the 2008 sale to Bank of America. Uh, ran two very big businesses at Morgan Stanley, left about two years ago. Um, you know, amid some signs that he was not going to be the next guy. Right. Uh, look, he's 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 ambitious. He's effective. He's pretty well rounded for a banker. He you know he's an investment banker. He knows that side of the business. Ran the institutional business at Merrill Lynch. Knows asset and wealth. Um, so really ha- has had his fingers in a lot of corners of finance. Look, this is interesting. It's not, I think, where a lot of people thought he would land. He was, you know, sort of thrown around in the mix for jobs at uh, running PIMCO, Bank of New York, Amex, uh, a senior job at Blackstone. So he, you know, um, ha- has been in in the mix for a lot of big public company jobs in finance. But look, this is uh, this is where a lot of big bankers are headed, which is private, entrepreneurial, um, often uh, on the buy side, uh, Boutique-y, right, very high end. Uh, we've seen a lot of of big bankers strike out on their own. This obviously is is um, sort of marrying that entrepreneurial bent um, with like one of the best names in finance.
1: Why is that? Why do you see bankers making I guess that move? What's what's attractive to them?
2: look, big banks have been sort of unpleasant places to be for the last decade. Um, just like there's a lot of nonsense and a lot of uh, overhead and a lot of compliance and a lot of paperwork, and it's just not as fun, and they don't pay you as much. And uh, and look, a lot of people are saying, well, why would I bother? Um, there's a lot of money out there in interesting places now. Um, you know, the, the goal here, and we can talk a little about the strategy, but the goal is effectively to take uh, a small family office that has been taking outside money for about 30 years now, um, and uh, and and to really grow it. And there's a huge amount of money. You know, you've heard a lot of talk about family offices, right? These are basically rich people who got rich, and rather than uh, give their money to a financial advisor to manage, says, well, I can do that, or I could hire someone to do that. Um, and they're, they're, look, there's not a lot of good estimates, but You know, two or three trillion dollars is probably floating around in family offices, Uh, and a lot of that is looking for access to Wall Street deals, access to good advice, access to M and A, access to alternatives. And so, someone like Greg, who who has run these businesses, who knows, um, you know, how to value companies, how to think strategically about about uh, businesses can really do something pretty interesting. And so, you know, you've seen, think about Byron Trot, right? The old yeah. gold, Warren Buffett's banker at Goldman yeah. went out, launched a boutique. So he's got the M&A side there and has a fund that sort of goes alongside it, raises money from rich people, helps those rich people manage their businesses and sell them and, and do things with them. And so, you know, this will probably look a lot like that. It's sort of going the other way a bit Rockefeller has wealth and asset management, and Greg's job is to come in and build sort of a small investment bank.
3: And it's a complicated deal, right? There's a, there's a lot of moving parts here from what I understand from reading your story, but it, it, who is Viking Global Investors, and what's their role here? So,
2: they're a very large um, stock hedge fund. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have a private equity vehicle, which is this will go in there, and they're, they're buying control. Um, of the, of the Rockefeller of the Rockefeller family, family, office. family office the family will hold probably in the neighborhood of 10% percent going forward uh, Greg's putting in some money um, but you know they'll, they'll kind of run it as a platform and then you know invest to grow to grow assets to um, to to grow services that they offer existing asset, uh existing clients
1: interesting that it's a lot of like a lot of these firms are being set up by former uh, you know M and A bankers, you think of them as sort of doing big corporate deals, but you forget they're oftentimes advising um you know very wealthy clients on those deals and that translates very well into this business right
2: right i mean look rich people mostly got rich by building and selling companies yeah. and so there's a really good interplay at a lot of the big firms including morgan stanley goldman jp morgan have a have a pretty good nexus between their advisory businesses their investment banks and their wealth management so it goes both ways whereas you know here you're going to have to build it a bit but imagine you know a a a a A business owner sells a company all of a sudden he's sitting on this pot of money what should he do with it you know you can offer those advisory uh, the wealth management services and the other way around which is that people who have fortunes to invest are looking for things to places to put it that you know, are not ETFs in the market. They want access to deals. They want um, they want you know sort of bespoke securities that that people who are in the Wall Street flow can find, like the
3: Marlins, like the Marlins. Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> some big names in here. Um, yeah. it, it's pretty rare that Derek Jeter gets overshadowed in a story, but he did in this story. What 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 is what is um, Mr. Fleming been doing for the last two years?
2: So so he's been doing some deals. Uh, he advised Derek Jeter on the purchase of the Miami Marlins. Um, the the uh, they won a World Series. They won two World Series.
3: long time ago. I forgot about that.
2: <laughs> you know, he he advised uh, Anthony Scaramucci on the, the sale of, of his hedge fund, which um, is a bit of a to thorny deal. Buyers, to the Chinese Chinese, yeah. a bit of a sticky sticky deal. You know, but it's, it's very close to... Uh, the, the Canadian billionaire family, the Desmarais. So, I mean, there, there's some interesting client uh, relationships that he's kept. He he he's an investment banker to financial firms back yeah. in the day, came up doing um, deals for asset managers uh, and pulled off perhaps the best deal of all time, which was <laughs> convincing Bank of America to, to pay a lot of money for Merrill at a very tough time.
3: Very tough time. Very tough time.
2: <laughs> <laughs> was that September of 2008? It was September yeah, of 2008. That was a, that
3: was a rough month. Uh, it was the weekend
1: that... Uh, September 15th? I think, I think that the, so that was just yeah.
3: before AIG bailout, if I remember correctly. Right.
1: I think yeah. the Wall Street Journal re- referred to it, although it hasn't really held up, but the weekend that Wall Street died. <laughs> uh,
2: it is certainly the weekend that that Merrill got got <laughs> yes. uh, a very large valuation. Uh, and and look, Gre- Greg was right at the middle of that. So um, he's very good at valuing companies, has a lot of connections and uh you know, there's a t- uh, there was a time where you'd say, well, yes, you'll take that in- to uh, another public company and-, and we'll sort of land somewhere big and platformy. And, um, you know, the the trend now is-, is say, well, why would I bother with that? And we think that, you know, the riches are in running large public companies. But, um, you know, the- there is a lot of of financial incentives in sort of the the private boutique space.
1: space. And so what, what, how did he do it, Morgan Stanley? I just want to sort of give, you know, for the people who might not know who he is, a little bit more of the context of, because he had a pretty decent-sized career.
2: Yeah, he joined in 2009, right after, you know, Merrill got sold. And he had worked with the CEO of Morgan Stanley, James Gorman, back at, at Merrill. So he came in to run, um, uh, to help run Asset and Wealth Management, which had a couple of different iterations. But on his watch, you know, Wealth Management, they had been integrating uh, in a couple of pieces the purchase of smith barney which is a huge deal for them um and you know that got integrated very well uh margins of that business have gone steadily up uh and it you know it's really now you know morgan stanley's engine it's it's yeah. the it's about half a revenue it's very stable it's a good business and a lot of that happened on greg's watch uh
1: you and know there's, and it was part of you know James Gorman you know Morgan Stanley CEO who would come from Merrill to like transform Morgan Stanley and get it to be more consistent in its sort of flows and kind of less ping-ponging back and forth from
2: what got Morgan Stanley in trouble you will know, remember yeah. is, was you know the the housing shorts and so they really have de-risked the trading side and have gone heavy into wealth and asset management which will, they're not they're not very sexy businesses yeah. <laughs> they don't they don't make a lot of headlines but they're very stable they don't screw up that often. They don't require a lot of capital. That's the other thing you were mentioning, you know, when when a lot of these sort of MA guys are going out on their own. Um, you can do that when your business doesn't require a lot of money, uh, when it's sort of just a relationship and a and a know-how um, kind of business. You can do it without a big balance sheet. So, so there's a lot of... Um, that's, I think, the attraction there for a lot of folks with, with good Rolodexes, but... But not a
1: lot of money. We're talking about Greg Fleming's ascension to CEO of Rockefeller & Company. And you are listening to Money Beat from The Wall Street Journal. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com.
0: For more insights, enable the Wall Street Journal skill on any device with Amazon Alexa. Get all of our podcasts, as well as the latest news and market updates. The Wall Street Journal. Listen ambitiously. This is Money Beat from the Wall Street Journal. Now from our studios in New York, here are Paul Vigna and Steven Grosser
1: welcome back to the money Beat podcast i'm steve grocer eric holm is joining me again in the studio and joining us now are kane otane and ben eisen the s p 500 is closed at a record 43 times this week that included a streak of six straight record closes the big question on investors mind is whether the markets can continue to climb higher sentiment on that seems to differ some think the stocks will melt higher others not sure.
4: I mean, it's, it's a it's a tug of war out there in the market. There are folks who think it will continue to propel higher, and then there are those folks who are just like uh, apocalypse kind of folks who are just like begging for a crash. It's a it's a very divided outlook, I would say.
0: I think one factor we mentioned the last time this happened that has been helping stocks keep climbing this time around is just the fact that global growth has been looking so much better than uh, where we were a couple years ago. So it's not just the U.S. where we're seeing relatively solid economic data, but also outside of the U.S. things are looking pretty solid and and that's just helping the broader stock market.
1: One of the things I think that's interesting and has been pointed out, September, there were a lot of places that could have tripped up the market and the rally. However, we're past September. What could really trip up the market over the next, I guess, three months?
4: I mean, anything—the same things that were there, that have been around all year, could you know finally come back to bite the market. You could have, uh, what if tax reform doesn't pass? What if the debt ceiling debacle flares up again? Uh, North Korea is a geopolitical issue that's been around all the time, and um, investors have ignored it.
3: Yeah, the weird thing is that these issues were uh, flaring up in September pretty you know dramatically, but it did not shake the stock market. It was a very strange thing to watch um, for some people anyway i I, I, I think mean, other people were expecting that no i mean we we talk a lot about the vix
1: and if you look at the vix over the past three. Months in the third quarter, essentially, it was the it averaged its lowest level of any quarter on record. Yeah, and and on Wednesday it you know fell below its all time low uh, closing low as well. So I mean, despite all these sort of reasons for markets to be nervous, how much of this do you think? One of the things that seems to be the biggest risk and the biggest concern among investors are the central banks, the Fed, but also just globally as they move from this extraordinary stimulus efforts and policy efforts that they've had over the last decade to finally tightening up. Could that derail this rally, this climb higher?
0: I think that's one of the interesting things um, that people have been starting to get worried about again recently after, you know, largely sort of just seeing the central banks as being in the background for a while. I think Bank of America's uh, fund manager survey for the last two months or so has noted um, fund managers are most worried about central bank policy mistakes um, in terms of what could derail the stock rally. Um, And I think that's telling. I mean, we're at this point where I think Bank of England, um, here in the U.S., the Fed, and I think the Bank of Canada are all um, positioned to start tightening. Um, And the question is if they move too aggressively, you know, could that derail the stock market? Um, Obviously, especially with the Fed, it's hard to tell because what they're doing with unwinding their balance sheet is uh, really unprecedented. So um, I think that's the big question that remains.
1: And also with rate hikes, you now have the market... With 70 you know, betting like basically the Fed Fund futures are at 70%. They expect a rate hike in December. Um, do you th- it, it seems like it, it, a rate hike's already baked in? Like, that's not too much of a concern on the market's mind,
3: which was a quick reversal, by the way. Yes, like you point out just a month ago that people were pretty skeptical that that was going to happen.
1: Yeah, it was it had fallen well below, I mean, 50%. I, yeah, yeah. It was way too long. um, and then you know, and people were you know harping on inflation, and in fact. The inflation data is still doesn't, isn't that strong. I mean, but we only
0: had one good
1: yeah, inflation data the, point, CPI, and and in fact, the Fed lowered its outlook for mm-hmm. inflation. Well, I, I in think this last meeting.
4: Yeah, I think I think that's an interesting point, and I think um, that may be one reason why people in the market haven't gotten too upset about the fact that. Uh, it, we're now sort of went from pricing in no rate hike to pricing in one rate hike because at the same time the Fed is, has lowered its long term rate outlook, which you know they sort of forecast rates out for the next couple of years right. and then they have a longer term outlook so on the one hand they're they're hiking they're, they plan to hike a little more aggressively than the market expects up front, but then maybe fewer hikes altogether in this cycle, so that was a little bit of one offsetting the other I think you know I
1: doubt one rate hike could really you know, affect the markets, especially when they're pricing it in. And given that financial conditions are so loose at this point. But it is the pace of rate hikes in the future that seems to be, you know, the thing that the market's most worried about and the Fed overshooting There,
3: Ben, you also wrote a little bit um, the people who are worried, how that might be helping the market. So explain that a little bit.
4: Yeah, I mean it's definitely sort of an interesting market narrative. This idea that that fear of market turbulence is itself keeping the turbulence from happening. That when people are sort of bracing for something catastrophic to happen, that catastrophic thing can't happen because the actions that would lead to it aren't happening. People aren't uh, taking on a lot of leverage, making very risky bets, ignoring mindless risk taking. That, That these are all things that happen when people think the market market will just keep going up and there's all this complacency. But we're not really seeing that complacent behavior. And when you don't see that, it's hard to get the sort of resulting uh, backlash. So the fear, this is one market strategist, uh, Jeffries, Uh, has been talking about uh, sort of the fear of instability is itself causing stability. Mm -hmm. And I mean, there's there's definitely many different ways of looking at this, but it it definitely seems like something that sort of could be happening at this moment in time where we're sort of looking at all of these things to be afraid of, and yet at the same time, it's not showing up in the market.
0: I mean, definitely when you look at people, uh, like their cash holdings, it's still relatively high. And when you look at, you know, sentiment surveys... There's not this level of exuberance that gets people really worried. You know, the level of bullishness out there isn't anything outrageous. And I think a lot of people take comfort in that, ironically.
1: The other thing, too, and and this was pointed out by our colleague Chris uh, Dietrich just about another thing that could propel the market over the final year is just performance chasing. You have a lot of active managers, even though they've had an improved year, still falling short of their benchmarks. And that could force them to, you know, to basically invest in riskier assets and the effort to make it up – in the last five, three months of the year, and that uh, that mindset could help also propel the rally further.
4: Yeah, it's true. It's um, uh, th- th- there are a lot of there's a lot of people who need to meet their benchmarks for sure, and the, and there are signs of risk taking in the market. I think one of them that has been talked about a lot this year is this idea of betting on volatility to fall, the uh, the inverse uh, VIX bet. There are products out there that you can use to do it, and. Um, it's been something of a craze, and that's maybe one of those signs of complacency because you make money by basically assuming that uh, the calm will remain calm or become more calm for you know into perpetuity if you're doing it for a long period of time. So I mean, th- there are risky trades out there, but at the same time it's it's uh it, it, is it is it sort of that euphoria that we're that we've seen it ahead of previous crashes? I mean, Really. like it. Yeah. yeah.
1: Thank you for joining us. This has been Stephen Grosser, Uvakane Otani, Ben Eisen, and Eric Holm.